along the way here. All right, so let's take a look at Genesis 22 today. The title of my sermon is The Binding of Isaac. Now, why do I entitle it that when often we associate this as like the testing of Abraham? And the reason is, is that in the audience that would have received this text, the Jewish audience, Israel, whether Israel is receiving it as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, or whether Israel, when they refound this text, the, the time where this text became so dear to them was when they were in exile and they had recommitted to the Tanakh, to the Torah. And as they had done so, recapturing again their zeal for the word of God, it's important to know that what it is that they really understood as they were contemplating the great truths that God has captured in his word. And for Israel, this passage on their calendar when they read it, and they normally read it, interestingly, uh, round about the, the end of March, beginning of April. On their calendar, it's Nisan 1. Uh, interestingly, that that would have been the reading that would have happened even in Jesus' time about two weeks prior to his sacrifice. So there would have been a heightened awareness among Israel at, at that time in the first century, even as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, or even as they were wondering, is there any real hope or deliverance for them out of captivity? This, would, this scripture would have been a, a right on time awareness of God's special relationship with Israel. And so with that, let's, uh, let's go ahead and uh, begin in chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, and this will be the last times that God speaks to Abraham. It is the 35th time that he speaks to Abraham as he speaks to him here in this chapter. 35 is not just a random number. Many have recognized that so much of what happens throughout the book of Genesis ends up in multiples of seven. And, and here we have this multiple of seven in the 35th time that God now speaks to Abraham. And he says to him, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, last week we just read about the final deliverance of the promises of God. Through your offspring, through, even though you had faithless laughter, through laughter, your son, Isaac means laughter, through the laughter that is now yours, the wonder, the joy that is now yours, will all the blessings, not only for you, but you will be a blessing to all people. All of that encapsulated promises in Isaac, whom you now love. He's now probably about 13 years old. Isaac, whom you now love, here's what I want you to do. And look at what it is. Your son, your only son whom you love, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Interestingly, when Abraham is initially called of these 35 times, the first time that he's called by God, he is called to leave his country his people, his family. And go to the place that I will show you. He doesn't even tell him where it is. He says, go, leave. 
Abraham says, where? God says, I'll tell you later. And in that first call of Abraham, Abraham was called to burn the bridges behind him. And now he's being called to burn the bridges in front of him as well. And to trust only and fully on God. Early the next morning, I don't think that's what would have been said if it were written about me. I mean, you want to talk about procrastinate. If there's one time in your life where you think there's not an early the next morning in Abraham's life, it would have come at this moment. But early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. So you see very particular preparations. And the mountains of Moriah are not known for being a desolate place. They have plenty of wood. But I think you see all of the very diligent preparations being done because it will make it all the more stark that they have the knife, they have the flintstone, they have the fire. They even have the wood prepared ahead of time that they're going to schlep with them on a three-day journey all the way over to Moriah and up the mountains, indeed, along that time. But yet, they go without the sacrifice. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in a distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then, interestingly, what he says here, we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering And placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham. And now we have the only conversation in the Bible between Isaac and Abraham. Between father and son. By the way, before we read that conversation. It's also interesting to note that Isaac carries the wood. I think I've always read this thinking. Well, sure, he's young. Abraham's 113. You've got a 13-year-old and a 113-year-old. Who should, who should kind of, you know, have, have the logs on their back? Uh, certainly should be the 13-year-old. But I think there's another reason, too. I think Abraham didn't want all these articles of danger, the knife, the, the, the fire, to actually be with Isaac. You know, as he has these last moments of heading up the mountain and who knows what is going to face him as he ends up there. But he does have some sense of faith that he has a good God and up the mountain he goes. And so Isaac speaks up and says to Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Many have noticed, by the way, that just as I'm slowing down, the narrator, Moses here, slows down the story. We have like broad sweeps of Abraham's life where suddenly a decade goes by and then another 13 years goes by. But now all of a sudden, as we get to this most poignant of moments in Abraham's life, it's as though the narration has gone from this breakneck pace now suddenly into slow motion itself as we begin to really ponder and marvel at every small detail as the story unfolds. The nuances even of this conversation. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. This is a beginning of a famous phrase here is God provides. And we have it in a kind of a transliterated Hebrew and English where we, we use the phrase Jehovah Jireh. Right, we're probably butchering, of course, the the, the proper way of, of any of saying of that, but 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 it's it's been popularized. But Jehovah Jireh is basically just Yahweh will provide, uh, and the word provide that we have here in the English is also basically just the word to see in Hebrew. And so what Abraham is saying is that you know God already sees it, God sees the sacrifice, so it'll be all right. Because he already has it in view, he will also bring it to bear. And so the two of them went on together. Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Such a decisive moment. In Hebrew, in order to put in the exclamation mark, the way you do it is to have a couplet of the word. So rather than just say Absalom when David wants to really be able to mourn his son, he says Absalom, Absalom. And here, as really we're, we're looking to be able to really recognize that this is an exclamatory moment. I'm getting your attention. It's no wonder that Abraham is a couplet here because this is the ultimate of exclamations that we have in the Bible. And so the angel intercedes from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And just as he said earlier, and as he's been saying to God throughout the entire time he's been called by God, here am I. Here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram. A ram is just a male lamb caught by its horns. He went over, took the lamb, the ram, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. I'm sure Abraham always said that as well. I'm sure Isaac, likewise. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants. And here is a recap of all the promises. It's as though God is taking the greatest hits of all of his promises from chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17 bringing them all together again and bringing them back to Abraham, the father of the multitude. Again, think of the irony of calling out father of multitude, father of multitude, as he's about to slay his only lineage to be able to produce a multitude. 
But now all of those promises are now coming back into this one recap statement to reassure Abraham one more time. I swear by myself, declares the Lord. God swears many times. He swears to David. Uh, he, he swears uh, to uh, Israel many times. But this is the only time where he says, I swear by myself. This is alluded to in Hebrews 6. We sang that song, Anchor for the Soul. What is that anchor? That anchor is hope. Hope based in a God who has made a covenant based on his own character. Amen. Saying, I swear by myself, is to say that by my character, I now confirm that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, that is reiterated quite a bit through this passage, I will surely bless you. Make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Amen. Then Abraham returned to his servants and set off together for Bathsheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. And so as we really look at one of the most profound passages in our Bibles, the first thing that I want to consider here is this very idea. My first point, the son whom you love. There is such a distinct contrast between the words of God reiterating again and again, your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and then what God asks him to do about that afterwards. And it should be a point of, I think, great conflict for us that God would recognize that Isaac has become as dear to Abraham as he could imagine. Laughter that has come into his home. Laughter, the joy of confirmation that he will, in fact, be a blessing to all nations. Laughter is now being called to be relinquished, to, to cut off his own son. It's a, it's a horrible idea that must have really confronted him and really should confront us as well. And, and we shouldn't have, I think, a facile faith, right? A facile faith is a surfacey faith. We, we should wrestle when we think, God, that's jacked up. Like, what are you, what are you doing? And, and, and be okay with that because God is okay with that. Read through the Psalms. It's, it's why Paul can take comfort in the Psalms as he wrestles with God. With like, God, why? As a freshman, what's going on with that? To, to be able to see the heart of those that have always served God is that there are so many contrasts that, that we encounter in life and so many contradictions that we've got to wrestle with, but to, to really recognize that if we do, we come away with this with a, a, a deeper and firmer faith in God. And th this idea of taking your son to, to the region of Moriah and sacrificing him there, the son whom you love, is, is no easy idea. You know, here's probably some of the most famous paintings of this scene throughout history. None of them is a pleasant idea. Whether that's Rembrandt up in the top left or Caravaggio next to that or Tatian down below. 
All, all of these scenes that are, are, are really some of the most famous artwork that we have, all of them depict something that is rather horrific. And I, I think about a song that Bob Dylan wrote and sang. And, and I remember always enjoying the song, but always being disturbed by it. And the, the song is called Highway 61 or Highway 61 Revisited. And it's a great tune. It's one of his, my favorite songs of Dylan. But the song begins. The very first lyrics of the song begins. Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe says, man, you must be putting me on. God says, no. Abe says, what? God say, you can do what you want, Abe. But the next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe says, where you want this killing done? God says on Highway 61. Now, I remember always thinking, man, is Dylan being unfair to God? It's, it's such a stark lyric that he, that he puts down here. We have it pop up in a lot of different areas. A show that I don't watch, by the way, but I was kind of researching this to see kind of popular allusions to the Abraham Isaac saga. And one of them is a show called Family Guy. I guess that's some sort of a family show. <laughs> Sounds nice. But in, in one of the episodes, Peter, is Peter, I guess, uh, maybe the dad? Uh, Peter realizes how mean he's been to his daughter, Meg. And, and this is the quote that he says after he realizes how bad he's been to his daughter, Meg. He says, I've been a worse father than Abraham. Realizing, of course, what, what we see in this story. Because Abraham argues for stinking Sodom and Gomorrah. Why isn't he arguing for Isaac? When he learns that Sodom and Gomorrah, a godless place that was indulging in every type of sinful fleshly indulgence. And on top of that, God says, that's not even the worst of Sodom and Gomorrah. The worst of Sodom and Gomorrah is they take radical advantage of the marginalized of their society. The poor, the orphans, they, they not only disregard them, but, but they oppress them. That's Sodom and Gomorrah where God says, their cry has come up to me and I'm about to destroy them. And Abraham, who has no real skin in the game in Sodom and Gomorrah, throws himself before the Lord and negotiates with God to see if he can't stay God's hand. Why not with Isaac? What's up with that, Abraham? Why isn't that the way the story goes? Why is the negotiation back in chapter 17 not in chapter 22? What's that? All right, God, how about if instead, uh, I don't know, I, we take separate vacations for a week or two? Like, would, would that be all right? How about if instead, there's none of that here, and it really does make me wonder, but what I think, why I have such issues with this is because I'm a Western individualist. And as a Western individualist, I don't really appreciate the depth of, of how the ancients would have regarded this text. Because the ancients always had a, a very special place for the firstborn. And, and it's something that's made its way through the Middle Ages, but it's something that's very ancient as well, is something called the Law of Primogeniture. 
Uh, primogeniture just means the firstborn. The law of the firstborn. So here's what I mean by that. There's a lot of very special things assigned to the firstborn in any family. But if, if you're an ancient and suddenly you have big herds, big flocks, big land, that's very important because that then offers you influence and protection because you've now come to a place of having some substantial holdings. Now, if you want to completely undermine that with your 12 kids, the way that you can then disperse and diffuse all of this strength that you've gathered is to give your inheritance to all 12 kids equally. And if you do that, suddenly all that you've built up for security has been diffused and you all become vulnerable and you all get picked off one by one. And so primogeniture was the idea, let's be wise, let's not disperse what it is that we've built up, let's focus it on the firstborn. And so just as the firstborn gets all of the blessings, the firstborn also bears all the responsibilities as well. And, and, and it is why that, that God will, will later on say in, in for example, Exodus uh, 13, uh, after the deliverance out of Egypt, he, he writes there, let me uh, jump to it for you. Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether husband or animal. So this idea that God gets the firstborn in a, in a communal family construct, in a, in a way that you make sense of things, not individualistically, but through the family line, would have recognized that if, if you're going to be my people and I'm going to purify you, well, then you need to consecrate to me your firstborn. Later on, the Levites become the firstborn. This is a long and complicated thing, but, but just to kind of, I think, just settle in on this idea. For, for Abraham, the reason he does not argue is the understanding that he is from a family line that has definitely transgressed against God again and again and again. And if he is to be made pure, if his family line is to result in the launch of the blessing of all nations, if he is to be the righteous one that spreads that righteousness, then there's a reckoning that needs to occur. And that reckoning comes through the firstborn. Now, God, when he asks that to be reckoned later on, uh, he, he does it through a lamb. Uh, here, Abraham would probably think, well, maybe, maybe somehow or another, God is going to take my firstborn. And one of the ways that he, he makes understanding of it, well, we'll look at it in a minute over in Hebrews. But also know that at the same time, this is not some sort of capricious sacrifice of a child that was going on in Canaan. As a matter of fact, in, in 15, chapter 15, when God gives the promise to Abraham, he says, all right, here's the way that world events are going to go for the next 500 years, Abraham. I am going to kind of have your people go down into Egypt. Lots of things are going to happen there. The reason I'm putting you in a holding tank, so to speak, down there is because the Canaanites, their sin is such an abomination. But I'm not going to bring you back here to wipe them out until I've given them like 50 second chances. And, and, but once their sin has reached its fulfillment to the tipping point where it's clear that there's no going back, then we're going to have to remove them from the land that they have polluted, the land of Canaan. As a matter of fact, God says in Deuteronomy 12.31, regarding these Canaanites, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. 
So here's kind of the conflict that we're still working with here. God obviously sees this as a detestable practice. But it's also then, in Abraham's mind, well, what do you mean by a burnt offering then? And again, this law will come later, but much of the law that is revealed later is the way that God was interacting with his people anyway. For example, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek before the law says to tithe. Cain and Abel sacrifice to the Lord before the law says to be able to do those things. So there's an understanding, apparently, already between how we relate to God, how we worship Him, how we show what He's worth to us. Uh, also, as, as we kind of uh, think through this, let me jump back here. If, if, if this is the case then with your only son, your son whom you love, my, my goodness, what a, what a, I mean, conundrum of all conundrums that Abraham now faces. But in the, in the depth of his core, he decides that he's going to trust in God. Now, at the end of the day, it's very tempting to just look at Abraham as the hero of this story and try to relate to it from his perspective. Let me remind you, everybody who read this in the original readers, whether it's Israel going into the promised land or Israel coming out of captivity... They didn't look to Abraham as, we got to be more like Abraham. You know what they looked at as? We need to take heart that God delivered Isaac. We're Isaac, was their mindset. But it's not our mindset, right? No, no, but I I had a little poll at breakfast the other morning. I said, all right, what's the, what's the takeaway from this story, Genesis 22? And I think like, like all of us, we're Americans. We're the heroes. We go in and save others. People don't come in and save us. We're not damsels in distress. We are Superman. We go make the difference. We don't have the difference made to us. And that mindset sometimes causes us to lose sight of the real magnificence of the biblical passage. We are the damsel in distress. We're on the log with the spinning wheel. What is it? The, what do you call that log? Um, sawmill. Thank you. Uh, we're, we're on the log with the sawmill coming our way. We, we, we need Superman to jump in and intercede for us. We are not Superman. And it would be very helpful for us to, to be able to keep that in mind as we make our way through. Because, yes, the beauty of this passage for Israel is we are the son whom he loves. We are the only son. And we have been delivered and we will be delivered through this. Now, but nonetheless, Abraham still does face... My second point, the most terrible test of faith. And as he faces it, he still goes up the mountain. With his only son whom he loves, he still goes up the mountain. You know, uh, many years ago now, more than 20 years ago, I was a a young minister. And uh, before coming into the ministry and in my early life, I, I had been married earlier, and I have two older boys through, through that marriage. They grew up in our church. You know them. Uh, but when, when I was uh, just going into the ministry, I was asked if I wanted to go to Detroit, Michigan. And I'm, I'm only a few months into the ministry. And I remember, you know, kind of going to the kind of the lead evangelist and some of the elders and not just saying, OK, because my sons are in Virginia. And for me to go to Michigan, oh, and this is before Michigan collapsed as well, uh, but nonetheless, before Detroit collapsed. But, but it had nothing to do with Detroit, it just had to do with the distance 
from my boys. It's like, but I'm not going to have my boys, my only sons, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And I remember fighting through this idea, and I was like, but it's a calling. It's a calling to go do so much more for the work of God. Like, ah, how do I make sense of this? How much of this is folly of just saying, I need to go and do the stuff of God? How much of this should be prudence of saying, just fighting back and saying, there's no way, let me just come out of the ministry. I just need to be near my boys. And I remember just fighting and wrestling through that, making like five, six forays into like trying to influence people who are up there in the decision-making process. You're trying to work the angles, lobbying, all of that, getting nowhere with it, and then, then finally deciding before we had a, a staff meeting the next day, I, I'm going to pray all night. I'm going to pray all night and, and really just try to come to, to real conclusion. I was fasting during that time too. And I remember fasting and praying. and thinking, ah, how can I do this? And, but there was one other really big factor going on. It doesn't work quite as well with the son Isaac story. And that is, I was starting to date this like incredible, amazing young lady. And she was sweet. Yeah, I, Look like, look like this girl here. Like that's, that's how amazing she was. Right? So all of this, I'm now suddenly going to have to kind of go away from and no longer have in my life. And so I remember reading this passage again and again and, and trying to make sense of it and trying to be responsible with it, not trying to be kind of an easy faith with this. And I prayed all night and I remember resolving in my heart that, oh my goodness, if, if this is not the body of Christ then what did I just quit my, my corporate easy gig for? If this is not the body of Christ. If this is not arranged by, by Christ himself, then what it is that I, I'm really doing. If I can't really trust really in the, in the body of Christ and what is going on here, then the only currency that I have as a minister, as a Christian, is my trust, is my faith. And can I really trust in God in, in all of this? You know, and as I'm... You know, kind of wrestling through all of this. You know, finally, just before it was time to get up and go to the meeting, I, I had a deep resolution in my heart, and I decided as I went there that I am going to trust, and I'm whatever it is that they really do decide needs to be the best path to my life. I'm going to trust that somehow God is going to work this out somehow or another. That I'm going to be able to have Zach and Chase in in Detroit, or somehow or another they're going to invent some sort of a super train between you know Virginia and, and Detroit. I, I don't know, but somehow or another I'm going to trust in this, or, or else what what am I doing here? And I, and I remember going and, and kind of grabbing one of the fellows there that was integral in the decision making process and saying, "All right, I need I need to talk to you." All right. Um, and, and I remember at this point, never kind of feeling such enthusiasm. It was weird because I was about to say, I surrender. I surrender to whatever the decision-making process is, even if it means me going to Detroit and knowing that the boys can't go. Like, I surrender over to this. And, and I, I, I go and kind of you know, share all of this and say, I, I, surrender, I, I really do want to make this faithful decision, recognizing that it is God who arranges this, not man. And, and, and anyway, so there it is. And, and I remember the fellow then looking at me and saying, well, let me tell you, we had a long and heated meeting last night. Uh, and basically the elders of the church were at the meeting. And boy, did they slap down my thinking on this. You're not going to Detroit. As a matter of fact, not only are you not going to Detroit, we're, we're going to move you and Deb down to Charlottesville, Virginia, which is where the boys lived uh, instead so that you can be there with the boys. Amen. And I remember like, oh, 
Thank you, God. How incredible is all of that? And you know, De- Deb had her private practice at that time. She was still a doctor in-, in Charlottesville. The boys lived in Charlottesville. Like all of it came around that way. But to have kind of really put all of it on the line for God and to realize, man, when you really do trust in God, he does come through. And that he heard those prayers and he dispatched Maybe it was Clay, who knows, into that meeting with the rest of the elders uh, to, to make sure that that kind of a move didn't happen. Uh, oh my goodness, but praise God along the way. But our faith is such a precious commodity. And, and that's why when people say, oh, I'm a believer, and I've been kind of spending some time with them, and I don't really see a trust in God, it, it, it scares me. Because it's so easy to say I believe, and it's some sort of anemic corruption of what, you know, many times throughout this process, we've talked about, imagine being with Abraham in heaven and having a discussion with him. Right. You know, about, well, Abraham, must have been nice to have God talk to you directly. And I'm sure Abraham then, as we've said, well, it must have been nice, you know, with me only having God talk to me once every decade, for you to have the entire counsel of God in your hand every second of the day. Right. Uh, I'll take that trade, maybe Abraham would say to us. But imagine being, having that conversation with Abraham and saying, you know, Abraham, it's, it's good to meet you, you know, because I'm a believer too. But, but if my belief is some sort of a, I don't know, a shadow or a, a pollution of what the word trust and faith and believe really means, I could imagine Abraham wanting to kind of like, you know, contain himself at that moment. Like, it was my son on the line. And you... You, you couldn't even like put anything on the line, anything that inconvenienced you, anything that undermined your budget, anything that undermined your reputation. You were so quick to rationalize away that, oh, does God really want this from me? Right. I, 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 oh, my goodness. I, I, you know, I, I think about oh, who I'd like to spend time with. You know, I'd be scared to spend time with John the Baptist once we you know, kind of enter into heaven. Or, but, but I think Abraham, wow, to be able to spend that time with him. But what got Abraham up that mountain? You know, here, I think he, it was his trust in God, abiding trust, trust that is being tested. And here he says, by faith, Abraham, I'm sorry, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions we're working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Yeah. And then later it says, Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Amen. His standing before God through that faith. All right, so let's get real here. Everybody says that everybody else is a believer. It's just our polite way of making sense of people in the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a good believer. Yeah, because you want to date her. And all of a sudden, she's become a believer. How about she sits down with Abraham, and let's see how that conversation goes, of, of whether, when we really look at what faith is, we, we have Abraham not for nothing. 1 Corinthians 10 says that all of these things are written down for us, not for nothing, so that we have a touchstone, a model, a real kind of, you know, kind of personification of what faith looks like. And if, if faith means that you can't even like rearrange your, I don't know, your, your hobbies to be part of our midweek gathering of the body of Christ, 
Well, what kind of faith is that? Right? If, if, if faith means for, for you that you can't even trust God to kind of show Him your, your worship of being able to give Him the first fruits of all that God has given you, and, and that's not really the case in your life, what is that? But now you're like, oh, yeah, I should, I should, I should. You know what? The I should, I should, I should, yeah, I really should have actions with my faith. You are not going to come away from really putting your actions with your faith, from rearranging your life, making the real sacrifices. You will not come away from that wanting. You will come away from that, I mean, dancing a jig. You will have the enthusiasm of the Lord, like, yes, yes, it's all true. The gospel's all true. God is so real. How amazing is all of this? That's the real enthusiasm whenever we really live in alignment with the biblical call to faith. Please, please, please don't let your life be some sort of a, a caricature of what it is to be a real Christian any longer. Decide now that I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with these kind of half measures. Time to be all in for the sake of the, the great glory of God. You know, in uh, Hebrews 11, we, we get to see, even though Abraham had it wrong, he just knew that somehow or another, God has got me. Right? Even, even my, my little, I mean, just, I mean, embarrassing example compared to Abraham of thinking, well, maybe there'll be a bullet train between Detroit and Charlottesville. I, I mean, that was, that was kind of idiotic. But, but look at Abraham. He says, but Abra- by faith, Abraham, when tested, this is the great hall of faith, Hebrews 11, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead so that in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Now, there's a wonderful naivete, childlike faith that Abraham has here. He didn't need to know the, the exact game plan and the blueprint for how all of this was going to come around to be a happy ending. He just knew in the character of God. We know the character of God in Jesus. We know that Christ in his amazing example for us is always going to lead us in great victory. Sure, there'll be persecution. Sure, there'll be sacrifice. Sure, there'll be travails. But nonetheless, we have a God who really wants nothing but the the most wondrous and best for us. All we have to do is go all in. Give all in for faith. But you, you may wonder, like, okay, maybe at first I went all in, but now I feel like I've stalled in my maturity and my faith. The reason that that maturity has occurred, I believe, is because... You are no longer the fertile ground you were in the beginning. Somehow or another, you've allowed the weeds to come in where you now begin to gain status, acceptance, acclaim from human agents rather than from God alone. But whatever it is that gives you some sort of affirmation, gives you security, whatever it is, if it's not God... It will eventually be either ripped from you or will fade away. Nino's good looks may get him pretty far. But you know what? One day, let me tell you, as a 53-year-old man, they will fade rapidly. (laughs) Your good health. Good to have right now. Can't bank on that. 
your friends, the security of your job, having gotten your house together just right at just the right. Entropy will take care of all of those things eventually until they're all either ripped away. So you might as well offer them up. Might as well offer them up and allow it all to be consecrated and sanctified in your walk in Christ. Allow it all to be glory. Allow it all to be glorified. Allow it all to be used for the sake of Christ. And when you do, and when God is enough, and when God is all that you need for status and acclamation and affirmation, when God is all you need, then you begin to grow again. You begin to flourish. You begin to be in a place where you can be the blessing that you were always meant to be. And then lastly, the Lord will provide. In Romans 8, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You know, just at the moment that we look at the sacrifice of Isaac, we say, how could God do that? What was God thinking? I need to recognize God did not do that to Isaac. God did not do that to you. God does not require that. It was a test. It was a test of Abraham and a test of Isaac. It was putting Isaac into a place where he could recognize trusting in God does bring deliverance. But yet, God still is a just God. He's a God of promise, but he's also a God of command. And if he is to be not only our great judge and our great deliverer, well, then there's a bit of a problem that's still left. We don't want a God who just simply dismisses, ah, we don't need the sacrifice. We don't need a reckoning. We don't want that to happen if, you know, suddenly on the dockets of, uh, 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 of one of the judges in town, uh, on the dockets of that judge is a serial rapist. If, if that person has, has raped 10 women, we don't want him to say, no, I'm feeling rather gracious today. Springtime, rebirth, renewal. How about I give you all a second chance? That doesn't enter the headlines of the, the Daily Press or the Virginia Pilot with everyone reading and saying, oh, how nice is that? Repeal that judge. We want a judge who is just. And by the way, if you don't have a judge who is just, Here's what happens. We then become very tempted to bring about that justice. And the wickedness only multiplies. It's very important for God to be just. But yet God's heart for us is also to be gracious. So how does he reconcile all of that? Isaac just goes. There's no reckoning for all of the family. How does he reconcile all of that? It's certainly not just by the lamb. Because Hebrews 9 tells us the lambs aren't going to be able to do much more than just kind of clean up the externals. It's not going to change your conscience. How will he do that? Because he does have to get a son. A beloved son. An only son. A firstborn. And he's going to have to have justice served. And he does it with his own son. God does provide. The Lord will provide. And he has provided for you and he's provided for me. And he's done it in a, in a way that is terrible and gruesome. And we could point to, oh, how could God do that? But the reason that he did it is because he 
needs us to be reconciled. And he can't just pass it off. If he just passes it off, vigilantism and all sorts of uh, horrors are unleashed. God knows what he's doing. But also, God does it because he has to do it. If it wasn't absolutely necessary for Jesus to die in our stead, for Jesus to be given up, for Jesus to be sacrificed, if it wasn't absolutely necessary, then God would not do it. If he did and it wasn't absolutely necessary, then God's a monster. But God is not. God loves you dearly. He wants you to share in that great affirmation. You are my daughter, my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. He wants that to be the experience of us all. He wants to provide so that can be the status and the affirmation and the acceptance that we all have. And he does it through Christ. And by the way, just on a side note, for all of those enlightened coffee shop metaphysical discussions about, well, maybe you can be reconciled to God this way or that way. Garbage. Garbage. If there is another way than Jesus being given up, then there wouldn't be Jesus being given up. There's no way God would ever give up his son if it wasn't absolutely necessary. Are there other ways to God than Jesus? No, no, no. There is but one way. One way for Isaac to be redeemed. For us to be redeemed. For Abraham through Isaac to be a blessing to all nations. For us to be the fulfillment of that. We don't just sit here as people like, oh good, we we have church and now we can have a place for our family and our kids are going to grow up with better moral characters. No, this has begun with Isaac. It is fulfilled in us. It has begun with Isaac that we will be a blessing to all nations. This is God's plan. This is his reclamation project for all things. It hinges on Jesus and the sacrifice that he's made. It's not meant to be just, oh, whatever, isn't it nice to be able to contemplate this? Let's let it count for something. So in closing, the great promise that is reiterated at the end here, we need to, in the end, to go, to go and fulfill the blessing. This is my closing charge. This blessing is still the great overriding mandate of what all that God has done. And and to think that all of that now comes and really is embodied in you and me. Let's go. Let's go and be a blessing. Let's go and help people understand what Jesus has done. Let's make sure that everybody has this chance. It is God's will and it is our great significance. Amen.